From Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute, this is The Last Best Hope, the podcast that looks at America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. Everyone seemed to be searching for God in the restless, mobile world of the early American Republic. The Constitution famously separated church and state, but no one should imagine that meant that elite Americans wanted to downplay the role of religion in American public life. Far from it. Governments in America called for days of fasting and thanksgiving. Governors spoke of the necessity of religion for a society to be harmonious and ordered. But with no dominant established church, there was a riotous religious free market. Even as non-conformist preachers stoked revivals in Britain in the tradition of John Wesley, across the Atlantic, such efforts fell on even more fertile soil. The epicentre of the religious revivals of the 1810s and 20s, the revivals known as the Second Great Awakening, was western and central New York. There, the fires of newly kindled spiritual enthusiasm were so intense that it became known as the burned-over district, a phrase popularised by the great Presbyterian evangelist Charles Grandison Finney. Upstate New York in particular was a place with lots of immigration, people coming in from other countries from all over the world to build the Erie Canal, to uh, farm land. And there was a, a sort of a rootlessness to that society or a sense that on the one hand, I want to stress both the optimism, but also the sense of dis- dis-ease that there wasn't a settled nature to society, to politics. And so people were seeking. I'm Laurie Maffley-Kipp. I am the Archer Alexander Distinguished Professor of Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. But it wasn't just mainstream Protestant missionaries who sought to bring souls to Christ. Charismatic religious entrepreneurs created their own startup sects, some promising the imminent return of Christ to earth. Some created small utopian communities, separated from the sinful world around them, experimenting with communal living while they awaited the second coming. Joseph Smith was a boy caught up by this moment of spiritual searching. Joseph lived with his parents in the heart of the burned-over district on a farm near Palmyra, New York. According to his later account, he started attending religious meetings when he was 12, becoming increasingly anxious about the state of his soul and uncertain about what denomination to join. And so Joseph Smith Jr., like many other people of the day, was looking for sort of that, that rock on which he could sort of establish his spiritual foundation. Joseph's religious confusion ended in the most dramatic fashion when he was 14 years old. He wandered into the woods one day near his parents' farm to pray. He later wrote, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. God and Jesus Christ appeared before him, told him his sins were forgiven, and that all the many churches in the world had turned away from the gospel. That was actually fairly common for people to come back and tell a preacher, I've had a vision. But what distinguished Joseph's vision from other visions was he actually communicated with God. Rick Turley, 
is a distinguished historian of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Other people saw God, but often from a distance. But Joseph Smith said, no, I actually met with God. I talked with him face to face, like Moses spoke face to face. And that helped to distinguish him from others of the time period. Joseph was seen as a prophet, not just a, a convert. And if Joseph Smith's first vision wasn't extraordinary enough, three years later in 1823, he claimed to have been visited by an angel named Moroni, who revealed the location of a buried book made of golden plates. Over the following years, Smith visited the site of the golden plates and translated them using a conveniently placed codebook from what he called Reformed Egyptian into English. The plates contained the writings of ancient prophets who had lived in America before and after the birth of Christ. Smith published the text in March 1830. It was known as the Book of Mormon. In this episode of The Last Best Hope, we investigate the origins of a globally successful religious movement that has at its core the claim that Christ literally came to America, investing it in the most profound way imaginable with the hope of redemption for all mankind. The story it tells is, in some senses, a continuation of the sacred history laid out in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the New Testament. It's, it's both a fulfillment and a continuation of those scriptures. And it tells the story of peoples who came to the Americas in the years before Christ's birth, who experienced wars and all kinds of sort of cataclysmic events, as well as periods of, of harmony and peace but who maintained a relationship to the, sort of their God. And the book then also includes within it accounts of Jesus appearing to them after his appearance to peoples in mm. the old world. So the book is telling of, of the risen Christ appearing in America, on American soil. Yes. I mean, this is an age when people were... Uh, hungry for evidence of God's continued involvement in the world Absolutely. and Absolutely. in a new and in new country anxious to articulate its providential purpose its providential meaning so yes. the notion that Christ has literally been in America is a is a powerful idea Absolutely absolutely powerful and I mean, it's easy to forget how much of a surprise it was, not only to Americans, but to the rest of the world, that they had beaten Britain in this, this revolution. And so, of course, many people from the time of the revolution, the end of the revolution on, saw America as, as fulfilling a sacred purpose in the world. And therefore, to have this record that then explains how this had been ordained from the beginning um, and Jesus had, in fact, you know, sort of been a part of this new world story, seemed to bring together so much of what they understood about their own position. It's not unique, is it? I mean, the, there are literary imaginings and, 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 and the idea that Christ has appeared in some form in other times and places. I mean, you know, listeners, British listeners in particular may think of, you know, William Blake's poem, Jerusalem, which kind of imagines Christ coming and, you know, England's clouded hills and so on. <laughs> um, 
But what you're saying is that there's there's something about what Joseph Smith was saying and doing here that made this much more tangible and concrete, because this wasn't just a fantasy, a claim, an imagined mythology. This It's a text which, for, for those who believe, has exactly the same um, authority as the original, the, the Hebrew scriptures that are part of the Bible. Yes, and in fact, goes together so well with those with those previous books, right? So it's, for many people, it confirmed and explained a lot of the questions they had about the biblical texts. Rick, how did he go about building a a, a community of, of, of followers in those early years? He mentioned to people that he had been led to this ancient record engraved on plates of gold in a hill near his home. And then he began translating that record. And we can tell from the historical evidence that he translated the record from the time that a man named Oliver Cowdery came to his home on April the 7th, 1829, until about the first week of July, 1829, so a period of about 90 days. And in those 90 days, he produced essentially a 500-page record meant to be a companion to the Bible, as Laurie has described. And by any measurement, it's a phenomenal kind of achievement. How could a person create a book of that size and that complexity with a, a very diverse character set, complicated chronology, intertwining narratives, and do it all in a single draft in less than 90 days? No. Well, I mean, those of us who write books uh, in itself, I mean, that's just the, the production is impressive. I agree. Yeah. Extraordinarily impressive. And, and it was the book. The book and the idea that it had been delivered to Joseph Smith by an angel that, that attracted followers. So Joseph Smith initially didn't need to do a lot to, to attract followers. And when the church was organized on April 6, 1830, it already had three branches, uh, two in New York and one in Pennsylvania. And then it just grew from there. It's hugely optimistic, you know, in contrast with the dour pessimism of the Calvinist tradition. What Joseph Smith is is offering here is something that's kind of bright and sunny and uplifting. Yes, it's the opposite end of the scale. Joseph Smith is preaching a doctrine which developed over his lifetime. He died at the young age of, of 38, but from the time he organized his church in 1830 until he died in 1844, he ended up preaching a faith in which anyone who was willing to keep the commandments of God, could accept the gift of grace and become not just a convert, not just a person who has to suffer, but someone who ultimately, as a child of God, lives with God in a family kind of relationship. So if a person on earth marries and has children, that person is able to live not till death do you part, as many wedding ceremonies suggest, but eternally in a loving bond with God and with, with family members. It was from the start, I think, a religion of extended families or people who had were far from their extended families and sort of wanted to join in this, this collective effort. Um, but, you know, the earliest followers of Joseph Smith were among his own family members and several other large extended families. It, it was also, um, I, I guess, as com as compared to the church today and what you might see there, it was 
often more enthusiastic. In a sort of charismatic or Pentecostal kind of way. Yes. Speaking in tongues. That's Exactly. So, yes. So speaking in tongues, gifts, various uh, gifts of the spirit that there are... Um, descriptions, you know, from the early days in Kirtland, Ohio, and Nauvoo of the spirit coming down, you know, the, the visitation of the Holy Spirit in the community. So it was a very energetic kind of young movement. You mentioned Ohio, and you mentioned Nauvoo, Illinois. I mean, this gets us into the story of dispossession, migration, the the building of successive New Jerusalems. The story of of Mormon migration from upstate New York eventually to Salt Lake City. This story, Rick, is is also is of course a story of 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 opposition and extreme violence. What was it in the communities that Joseph Smith? I mean, I was going to say settled in, but it's more than just settled in. It, you know, established and cultivated. What was it about those communities that were threatening to authorities? There were several factors that came together in most of those locations where opposition occurred. One of those, one of those factors, of course, was a difference in religious belief from the people in the community. But there were other factors that came to play as well, economic factors. When you had a large number of people migrate to a, a community that we'd consider a small community today, so that they very quickly came in and economically began to um, dominate the region. And under American standards, they became politically powerful as well, because in a place where the majority... They, they voted as a block, they voted right? That. And, that was, and Joseph Smith used that and leveraged that, right? And both in, in Missouri and, and then later in, in Illinois, I mean, he, he was uh, adept at playing off, you know, Whigs and Democrats and kind of offering them the block of, of Mormon voters to one side or the other. Yes, and it's, it's generally true that if you are a minority and you want to exercise some type of power, you, you kind of get together shoulder to shoulder and you work together as a group instead of having your vote split. So Joseph Smith recognized that, as did other uh, Latter-day Saint leaders. And so people began to oppose them. And unfortunately, in the early United States, people would often take the law into their own hands if they saw something that they considered not to their liking. And so vigilanteism became a rife in the areas where Latter-day Saints lived, and people attacked them. Uh, people who were members of our church were killed. Uh, women were sexually abused. Property was stolen. They were driven from areas in which they had purchased property and settled on it. Then others occupied the land. So it was a it was a violent and turbulent period. My own ancestors came into our church in the 1830s and went through a lot of that. I have uh, personal stories handed down in our family. Um, when our when eventually the Latter Day Saints uh, left Illinois, I lost numerous family members between there and Salt Lake City, who died, frankly, of diseases and uh, starvation that could have occurred in the cities where they were, but were most likely exacerbated by the fact that they were refugees in poor condition. Laurie, Rick's just mentioned Illinois there. So the, the city of Nauvoo, uh, Illinois, was the culmination of, of the Church of Latter-day Saints' uh, attempts to create a new Jerusalem, as I'm calling it, within the, United, within the borders of the United States as it existed at that time. And for a while, in some ways, that was their most successful attempt. Joseph Smith uh, had huge 
power in that city, both spiritual, obviously, but also politically. It was on the, the the far fringe of the of the of the northwest corner of the state of Illinois, which at this time in the early forties was at late thirties, early forties was itself a, a frontier state. Can you describe something about the the way that that city was run? What was it like to be part of that community? It was, uh, I would say. Um a place where there was uh, sort of a great sense of communal sort of cohesiveness, where they would get, have large gatherings and listen to leaders of the church speak to the community as a whole. There was a sense, too, that, yes, that this was a time to gather people from all points of the earth. The immigration from places like Great Britain had already begun. So there were uh, immigrants streaming into Nauvoo from other parts of the world. And there was a sense that we were in, in this uh, sort of a collective sense to bring people together and to build God's kingdom on earth. It sounds quite idyllic when you, when you, when you, when you, when you paint it like that. I mean, the, <laughs> and, and I mean, there are lots of comparisons in my mind with the, with the, with the early Puritan communities of the 17th century. It's a theocracy though, isn't it, Rick? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a a small polity in which the spiritual and political power is concentrated in a small number of hands. Yes, it's true. And it, it develops into a theocracy because of the poor experiences that the, the saints had in Missouri. In Missouri, they began to experience persecution. They took their concerns through the legal system to the courts and found that the courts were controlled by the very people who were persecuting them. They went to state leadership and found the same thing, that the state leaders were more concerned about their personal votes than they were about the rights of religious minorities. They went to the federal government, spoke to the president of the United States, which you could do at that time fairly easily, and he basically said, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. I'll lose the vote of the state of Missouri. That's a summary of a longer meeting. But when they when they finally migrated to Illinois, they looked at through the lens of the experience they had had in Missouri and said, if we are going to protect ourselves from this type of opposition, the first thing we need to do is have control of the local government because the local government is what oppressed us before. So Joseph Smith becomes the mayor of the city of Nauvoo and through some lobbying gets the state of Illinois to essentially designate it as being like a city state, uh, something that's on a par uh, with being its own little government. And then they establish their own uh, state-appointed militia. So you had Joseph Smith as the mayor. He was the head of this military group. He was also the justice for the, the local municipal court. Now, all that being said, when you read Joseph Smith's own writings, what you see is he didn't want to have all of those responsibilities. He did it in order to protect his people. What he really wanted to do is get rid of those responsibilities and spend his full time in spiritual pursuits. And near the end of his life, he was trying to figure out ways to do that when he was murdered. We have to talk about polygamy. We have to talk about plural marriage, because if you were a political advisor to Joseph Smith in 1840, you would tell him, go nowhere near polygamy, right? This is this was, the, in, in, so far as I can see, the single worst thing they did in terms of public relations with the wider American Republic in the 1840s. Rick, what do you think? You're smiling, you're smiling when, I, when I say that. <laughs> so I'm one who has spent a lot of time trying to understand Joseph Smith. 
And I think what he was trying to do with plural marriage, as well as with something called the law of adoption, was figure out a way to replicate on earth what he had seen in heaven. So when people say the word polygamy, they immediately think, they immediately sexualize it and say, well, here's a, here's a man who's having sexual relations with a lot of women. When you look at Joseph Smith's own life and experience, I do think that there had to be some type of sexual relations going on, but not much. And I say that because here's Joseph Smith, a man who dies at age 38, has multiple children through his first wife, leaves her pregnant at the time he dies. And he has, as far as we can tell, dozens of other women who are sealed to him or are his wives. And yet we have not been able to find any progeny through any of them. So why would a person create all of these marriages and yet not have sort of a normal marriage relationship with all of those wives? I think it's because what he was trying to replicate was what he had seen in the eternal worlds, this idea of people who are interconnected in large family groupings. Laurie, what do you think of all that? I mean, that's as, that's got to be as good a defense of um, polygamy uh, as, as you're going to hear anywhere. What do you think? Uh, there were outsiders who completely disagreed. If you didn't share that vision of heaven, obviously it was easier to see these ceilings to multiple women as something um, sort of that went against the moral values of other kinds of Americans. And that's, sorry, that's ceilings with an S there. You're talking I'm sorry, about the, ter it's the term that was yes, used. Yes, yeah. ceilings meaning that, yeah. yes, the joining yeah. together of family yeah. groupings, but of men and women in, in these celestial marriages. So from the outside, you know, there were, there were increasing numbers of people that were growing very alarmed by the fact that in Nauvoo, there were thousands of people streaming in, immigrants streaming in from other countries building up the political power of this place. And from other Americans, it seemed to sort of run against the values that they purported. And of course, there were a, a number of influential uh, ex-Mormons, ex-members who left the community and then wrote about it and described what they saw as sort of the moral failings of this group. So you can see the ways in which from both sides, the sense of persecution, the sense of fear would build up over time and just create this sort of uh, explosive situation. Rick, you've mentioned Joseph Smith's death in 1844. Um, when he died, and he was he died a violent death, he was running for president. I want to dwell on that for a moment, and uh, uh, in part as a way of asking you both about what seems to me to be this big question of the relationship between the Church of Latter-day Saints and the United States. Smith was running for president of America. You you talked before, um, Rick, about him going to the White House when Martin Van Buren was president and, as it were, petitioning the president for redress for the depredations to property that his community, his followers and himself had suffered as a result of state-sanctioned violence. And as you said, the, the president said, well, I'm sorry to hear this, but what can I do? And, you know, that might could be rendered as, oh, well, he didn't care very much about Mormons, but actually, literally, what could he do? I mean, you know, it's a federal system. <laughs> He's the president of the United States in Washington. Really, literally, what could he do? I mean, the answer is nothing, right? I mean, there wasn't anything he could do. I mean, I'm wondering what it is... How does Joseph Smith, a question for you, Rick, as someone who's who's studied him so closely, 
What does Joseph Smith think the United States is? Why does he want to be president? What does he think the function of the president of the United States can be? What does he think is the the religious mission of the United States? How does he understand the American Constitution, which is obviously not the same in in structure or tone as the way in which he, in a secular sense, is, is running Nauvoo? Joseph Smith believed that the American Constitution was divinely inspired. And so he believed that the rights that were protected by language in the Bill of Rights and other portions of the U.S. Constitution and its amendments should be applied not only in the federal system, but in the state and local system as well. And when he discovered that because of the way the United States was structured at the time, the way its legal system operated, that the individual human rights, the civil rights of church members would not be protected at the local level or at the state level, and that the federal government would not intervene to protect them, he decided to run for president as a way of protecting minorities generally, not just religious minorities, although he was adamant about protecting people of all faiths. But he also wanted to protect uh, African-Americans, people who uh, were of different races. He was very interested in native peoples of the Americas. He wanted to protect them. So he was running, I think, as much as anything to to draw attention. Now, it's fascinating to me that over the course of the history of the United States, from the time of Joseph Smith's death to the present, that the system has gradually moved in that direction. It took a civil war. Well, the 14th Amendment did a a great deal of that work, obviously, to nationalize the kinds of civil rights and protections, at least on paper, that you're you're talking about. Yes, so it took the Civil War, the 14th Amendment, civil rights legislation and the civil rights movement to begin to get the United States to fulfill the vision that Joseph Smith had and, and the purpose for which he was running for president. It's easy to forget, looking back from our vantage point as from post-civil rights, post-14th Amendment, it's easy to forget how unsettled the understanding of what a federal government actually was for um, was at the time. In the 1840s, people were dealing with uh, slavery, the slavery crisis, sectional, um, you know, uh, tensions were growing. And so someone like the president of the United States in part didn't want to get involved in some of these questions because of the slave issue. Mormons also were came to be identified with the anti-slavery cause, which, you know, good, good for them for, you know, for championing, you know, sort of the, the rights of African-Americans at, in, in certain ways. Although I think some of that uh, was probably because they needed allies. But but it's absolutely true that they they did protect religious freedom within Nauvoo. However, you know, from the outside, the the issues of uh, sort of the slavery question were arising in such a way that the federal government really wanted to steer clear of anything dealing with states' rights. Whether Joseph Smith, you know, was aware of the kind of complexities of that, he clearly was looking for uh, a redress of grievances. And in, in, as Rick has said, at all levels, he starts with the states, doesn't get it, you know, good responses there, and moves to the federal government. And I think eventually um, wanted to be president because he did want to preserve rights for his people. It's, it's it seems a very kind of in a way in a very quite an American conundrum. So on the one hand, we have the Church of the Latter-day State Saints who are who clearly suffer deeply because of the, th- the threat that the state can pose to religious minorities. Uh, on the other hand, 
we have the it seems to me not entirely when you look at how Nauvoo was run the not entirely unfounded fear on the part of others that religious institutions as with the with the puritans in early new england the threat that religious institutions can pose to the to the secular state or to the republican order more broadly um when big claims are being made about this being the the church that has the one truth yes that's a basic tension which has of course never gone away i was going to say i think we're still fighting that battle in many regards in our current political climate smith was he well he was arrested wasn't he in 1844 i think there's there's i mean there's a longer story here about kind of intra mormon infighting there was an excommunicated church leader called william law who founded a, a rival church began publishing a a newspaper which uh, accused Smith of polygamy, which I guess was <laughs> true, and detailed the ways in which he was supposedly dangerous to American democracy. And Smith ordered the suppression of that newspaper, declared martial law in Nauvoo. And anyway, in the end, this this kind of escalated and the state of Illinois accused him of inciting riot and he was imprisoned. And then I think I'm getting this story correct. And then a, a mob essentially stormed the, the prison and he was killed during that that mob invasion have, have i is that have i got that story roughly right yes let me add a little bit of additional context when the latter-day saints had their own newspaper in 1833 in missouri and published something that led slaveholding missourians to feel that they were anti-slave in nature a local mob attacked the the their newspaper establishment they not only got rid of the press and the issues of the paper, but they took the two-story substantial brick building and tore it completely to the ground. The local people in Missouri went to the courts for redress and got zero. Uh, basically, the, the courts sided with the mob. In, in Nauvoo, with that sort of background, when this opposition newspaper arose, the biggest concern is that its, its main intent was not freedom of the press. Its main intent was to incite violence against Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo. So the city council met. They got legal help. The legal counsel they got was that, it, that because of its purpose, it could be declared a nuisance and suppressed, as you mentioned, abated. So they, they shut down the newspaper office. There wasn't a huge riot. Um, and then that was exactly what local people wanted. They, this was a tinderbox. They wanted some spark that they could use to raise mobs and attack um, the people in Nauvoo. So its purpose was, in fact, to incite violence. So Joseph Smith felt that because they were after him, the best thing for him to do was to leave and probably go east to try to get help again from the federal government or from others, and then ultimately to take his people and go west and establish their own their own communities outside of the organized bounds of the United States. When he left, there were people in Nauvoo who said, look, you're leaving at the worst time. We're under a threat. You really need to be here. So Joseph Smith agreed to go back, knowing that it might cost him his life. He turned himself in to the Illinois state authorities. He went to the county seat. He responded to the charges, and then he was let go. And then because the purpose of all this was not justice. It was not freedom of the press. The purpose of this was violence. He was then rearrested on a charge of treason, which was a trumped-up charge. The idea of treason was that because he was the head of the Nauvoo Legion and because he had ordered the Legion to be in readiness in case of a mob attack, that he had therefore been going against the state. 
So that, that pinned him down in the jail, and that's when a mob of about 150 or so uh, men with their faces painted to disguise them attacked the jail with, with guns and shot him to death. And then you would think if you were um, uh, observing the situation at that time, that's got to surely be the end of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Uh, how on earth are they going to survive the violent death of their charismatic leader? But of course, they did survive. And they survived, as you just said there, Rick, reminding us that at that time, Salt Lake City, um, what's now in the state of Utah, um, uh, was, of course, outside the boundaries of the united states but it wasn't to be for long for very long i mean that's the great irony so almost no no sooner had the church resettled and founded a new 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 jerusalem in salt lake city but the mexican-american war all of a sudden meant that that whole area which had previously been a part of the of, of the spanish empire and then of, of of mexico became part of the united states and the whole problem had to potentially restart again and we haven't got time to go into this but there's then a whole story through the 1850s of um, um you know brutal warfare between united states forces and uh, church members but the the church rick obviously i mean and it's a fait accompli they're now back in the united states however much they they had initially tried to get out of it um they're clearly not giving up on the united states because of course they then petition for statehood and you know many decades later in the post-war post-civil war period obviously the they're successful in that sense, not not as a formally constituted theocratic state, but as a, the state of Utah, which which then and everybody understood and still to this day has a very heavy concentration of, of, of church members. Why did church members even at this point not give up on the United States, despite being subjected to violence both from state and federal authorities? When they left Illinois and the organized bounds of the United States to head west towards the Great Basin, they gave up on the way the American state protected minority rights, their own and the rights of others. They, they just said that the, despite the high-sounding words of the Constitution, which they believed to be divinely inspired, the country simply wasn't operating the way it purported to uh, operate in the Constitution. So they went west hoping they could build their own community where those rights would be protected. When the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed in 1848, they suddenly found themselves back in a United States possession. They petitioned for statehood, but initially didn't meet the qualifications and so became a territory. And as a territory, they had the same concerns that a lot of territories in the West had at the time, which uh, basically circled around the idea that people far away who didn't share the same values were dictating what went on in their, in their government. So... When that was all resolved after the abandonment of, of plural marriage uh, and Utah became a state, I think the people in Utah began to feel that at last they could have protection for believing uh, the way they chose. They could select their own leaders. They could send representatives back to Washington who could then represent them uh, before the greater public. And there was a reconciliation basically around the second uh, decade of the 20th century with the American public generally. And from about the, that second decade until the middle part of the 20th century, uh, Latter-day Saint values and American values seem to align very closely. And, and 
saints were considered to be, in many ways, paradigmatic Americans, while at the same time, the church itself was moving to become uh, more international and eventually global. I mean, do you have any final thoughts, Laurie, about what this tells us? What does the the church's sort of complex relationship with the the United States um, tell us? I think one thing it tells us is that like other uh, like, like the Catholic Church of the 19th century, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time was an immigrant church. And it was an immigrant church that um, was living in a country where the status of immigrants, as we've already talked about, the minority status of many immigrants was a source of concern for for other Americans. Um, So part of what I think what happens, and this is where the story gets really interesting to me as well, is in the early 20th century, not only does the church, do members of the church start to be seen as, you know, sort of more American than, than other Americans. But there is an active campaign to make that happen on the part of church members, mm-hmm. on the part of leadership, um, to move to move out of this Utah bubble into Washington, D.C., or into other states, into higher education on, on the East Coast and the West Coast, and to assimilate in certain kinds of ways. It's not unlike the mm-hmm. story that many immigrant groups go through in that sense, although we don't usually think of Mormonism as an immigrant religion, because I think that ideal of them as quintessential Americans uh, leads us to forget. Laurie and Rick, I'm so grateful to you for, for, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Enjoy it very much. Delightful. Thank you. I was talking to Laurie Maffley-Kipp from Washington University in St. Louis. In addition to writing the introduction to the Penguin Classics edition of the Book of Mormon, Laurie's publication include Proclamation to the People, 19th Century Mormonism and the Pacific Basin Frontier, published by the University of Utah Press in 2008, and to Rick Turley, who previously served as both an assistant church historian of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and as managing director of the church's public affairs department and is the author of many scholarly books and articles on church history. Viewed from one direction, the Church of Latter-day Saints is almost a caricature of Americanism, with its smiley optimism, its family focus, its boosterish theological claim to be based on the revelation of Jesus' in-person visit to America after his resurrection. Viewed from another direction, the Church is alien and un-American, offering a cultish, theocratic, morally deviant alternative to a deliberative democratic republic. And the really amazing thing is that both of these perspectives can be true at the same time. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from Oxford University's RAI, which examines America, its ideals and ideas. The producer is Emily Williams. I'm Adam Smith. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. Goodbye.